I, I echo the welcome that you've already gotten this morning. I'm glad that you guys are here. I want to tell you of some events that happened nearly 2,000 years ago. You'll find these in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And to, um, just to give some clarity about it, if some of the folks in, this, in these events uh, are not given names to us, so I'm going to make up a couple of names. It'll be easier to tell the story, easier to track the story. So I'll add a couple of names you won't find in that passage. This was 2,000 years ago. Eleazar is standing in his house. It's the early morning hours, and he is finding himself in this surreal setting. Jesus has just come back into Capernaum the night before. And of all of the houses in Capernaum, Jesus has picked his house to stay at. He's a great miracle worker. He's the one that just sometime before had been in this town and done great miracles of healing. And of all the, all the homes, this is the one that Jesus has picked. And so now it's the early morning hours. The sun's come up for about an hour. And, he, and he's still in this wonderment. He couldn't sleep all night knowing Jesus was there. And, and already by this first hour of daylight, his house is packed with people that have heard about Jesus being there. And he looks out one of his two front windows, and he sees that, that people are, are still coming, and they're gathering outside around his house, and they're, they're just layer upon layer already forming around his house. And so he's, he's wondering uh, what the day might unfold for him. Meanwhile, all the way across town, there are these five men that have been best friends their entire lives. They grew up as childhood friends. They went through their teenage years they all married, they all have kids, and, and they do everything they can together. One of the five, Josiah, though, is paralyzed. He's been paralyzed for a long, long time. But that doesn't keep the friendship from being fully orbed in every way. It, and every time they can work together, Josiah is part of that. Every family event that one family has inviting the other four families, he's all part of that. If it's a close trek from one house to the next, then they'll walk over and they'll just have have an arm thrown over a shoulder and they'll just help him get to the next house if it's a farther trek they have this stretcher that they've made and and there are four of them and they each pick up a corner and he lays on the stretcher and and they take him and so in fact indeed many times they'll go right down to the the sea of galilee which is on it's on the edge of their town and he'll lay on the stretcher and they'll pick up the four corners and they'll go down and as families and and picnic but on this given morning one of the four that carries the stretcher has heard that Jesus is in town. And instantly he thinks about Josiah. And he remembers the people that had been healed previously when Jesus was there. And he thinks, why not Josiah? Why not him this day? So he goes to the other three and he, he quickly tells them his idea to take Josiah to the feet of Jesus. And, and they quickly catch the vision. And the four of them go to Josiah's house. And, and their enthusiasm is contagious. And they tell him, this is the day you're going to walk. And so they tell him about their plan, and Josiah catches the vision, and Josiah's wife is there, and she's so filled with hope that tears stream down her face, and they, he gets on the stretcher, they pick up the four corners, they go out the front door, and they encounter the very first obstacle. They have no idea where Jesus is in town. And so they begin to walk down one dusty street after another, and indeed, they're one of the last ones to even know about Jesus being there, so they're at the very tail end of the crowd, so it's dusty street after dusty street, after dusty street. But, but they don't grow tired of it. They finally turn a corner and they see where Jesus must be. There's this massive crowd. I mean, there's this deep, deep packed crowd. And obviously there's this house in the center of the crowd and that must be where Jesus is. From a distance, they, they continue walking. They still have hope, but the closer they get and the more 
densely packed they observe the crowd is, their hope is quickly dashed for a moment. They get to the edge of the crowd and they put Josiah and the stretcher on the ground and there's no way. There's no way they could push through that crowd. They, they stand there and one of the four suddenly comes back to life and he says, I have an idea. I won't tell you the, all of it, but here's the first step. Of, we, got it. we have to push through the crowd. It was the kind of crowd that a single man could hardly get through. You'd want to try to get skinny, turn sideways. And, and even then, people were holding their position. Everyone wanted to be close to Jesus. And, but the, this leader says, we, we have to find a way. And so they begin, excuse me, excuse me, pardon us, pardon us. And, and there are a lot of grumbles and there's some unhappy people. And, but, but they will not be deterred. And, and they forcefully push their way step by step by step through the crowd. When they approach the house, this leader says, one of you guys look through one of the two windows, see exactly where Jesus is, and then I'll tell you the rest. They, they walk up to the side of the house, and it was a typical house of the time. It would have stairs up one side of the house up to the roof. It would be this mud-thatched roof where the family would often go up in the evenings up to the roof for the cool breeze that would be there. And he said, one, one more, one more quick journey up the steps. So they take Josiah up the steps. They're on the roof. They put him down. And the, the other three and Josiah look at this guy curiously for the plan. And, and he says, well, before I tell you who saw Jesus exactly, exactly, where is he? And so the one that saw him kind of pasted off and said, well, he's like, he's right here. And so the leader said, here's the plan. Get your knife out. We're going to cut a hole in the roof and we're going to get him down there. There's this pause. <laughs> like, this, is, this guy lives in their town. This is his house. They're about to seriously deface his house. But they look at Josiah, and, and all limitations are off the table. I mean, whatever it takes. And so um, they begin to take their knives, and they begin to scratch through and begin to cut this hole inside the house. Eleazar, the homeowner, he is still so stunned and so in awe that Jesus is there. And he's listening to this teaching that is captivating. He doesn't even notice the scratching sound on the roof that's going on of his house. But he does begin to notice there's this dust that's beginning to fall down. His first thought is, my wife had been after me to repair the roof for a long time. I should have done it for the day of all days. Because of all places, it tends to be falling around Jesus. So he looks at Jesus to see if it's bothering him, and Jesus doesn't even seem to notice it. He just goes right on teaching. But then to Eleazar's horror, the dust becomes particles, and the particles become pieces, and the pieces get bigger, and it's landing on Jesus, and Jesus just stops. And the whole crowd is looking at it, and they look up, and all of a sudden these holes begin to appear in the roof, and then bigger chunks fall. Jesus steps back, and, and in a short time there's this gaping hole in the roof of Eleazar's house. Everyone's looking up, and suddenly, four faces appear in the hole, and just as fast disappear, and then quickly, there's this stretcher that, that uh, is now in the hole and lowering down into Eleazar's further horror. There's a body on the stretcher. When he realizes the body is alive, there's a small amount of relief that this body is alive, and, and the body is lowered down to the ground. There's this very brief word, maybe only a sentence that Jesus says to this man on the stretcher. And then Jesus says these few words to some of the crowd that's just right around him. And then Jesus looks at 
this man, this man, Josiah, and says, stand up, roll up your mat, and walk. And Eleazar would tell the story to his dying day. He said the man leaped to his feet. He rolled up the stretcher, and he walked out. And after this momentary silence, there was this bedlam of awe that occurred. And you could imagine how Josiah must have felt. You can imagine how the four on the roof must have felt and the celebration that they had. But I've left out one part of the story. And it's this part that seems to be disruptive to the story. And it seems to be disorienting about the story. There's this, there's this clean storyline. There's this man that is paralyzed and he can't walk. And there are these friends and they long for him to walk. It's clear this is, this is the greatest gift they could give him. And Jesus, the miracle worker, is in town. And they take him on the stretch, which even highlights the need that he has. And Jesus heals the man. And it's this clean storyline. And right in the middle of it, in Mark 2, verse 5, this is what it says. And Jesus Right before this verse, he's, he's looked up and he's seen the four faces that are now back in the opening and the roof again. And then he looks down at Josiah and it says, seeing their, their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. And in that moment, up until that time, up until that time, as every other person, Josiah had been a person with sin. And that sin had created this massive barrier between him and God until that very moment. In that moment, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And this barrier in that moment was vaporized. The barrier that had separated him from God all of these years, all of his life was vaporized. And in that very moment, there's this brand new life. It's birth in Josiah's life. And there's this, there's this personal, intimate relationship with the God of the universe that has begun and his eternal address has been forever changed. And as Jesus, above all others, would describe again and again and again, he would say, until the moment of forgiveness, the destiny of a man and woman is hell. And more than anybody else, Jesus would describe that and the horrors of that, which helps you understand why he would go through the horror of a cross to change that. And Jesus would say, but when sins are forgiven by me, the eternal address is heaven. Everything, everything has changed. Everything has changed. One story, two miracles. There's this physical healing and there's this spiritual healing. And the physical healing was deeply profound, deeply profound. I, I have only some measure of appreciation for what happened that day physically on that day. One of my closest friends through four years of college, James Duke, could not walk. I can't tell you the times when I would be out running through campus or, or running through the town and, and I would be feeling the sensation of what it feels like to run and, and the wind in my face and the sun on my shoulders and that I didn't think about James. And, and it was crystal clear. He would never know this. And I yearned for him to know what I was experiencing which to this day he still has not experienced. I, I, this, is, this physical miracle is no small thing. But you know this miracle, a physical healing, had a shelf life, don't you? You know what it means to have a shelf life? This man was an adult by this time. Looking at the life expectancy of that time, he probably had, if things went well, he probably had another 20 or 30 years left. 
another two or three decades, and this miracle had had a shelf life of two or three decades. But certainly when Josiah breathed his last on the planet, then then that miracle was no good anymore. It it had run its course. That miracle had rewritten his life for his life on this planet. But this spiritual miracle has no shelf life, does it? There's no expiration date to it, right? In that moment, there was a brand new life he began to live. Those next 20 to 30 years, he lived so differently. He knew, he knew, he knew the God of the universe. But when he breathed his last on this planet, he stepped into heaven, where he's been for 2,000 years. And another 2,000, he'll be there. Another 2,000, he'll be there. Two miracles that day, and, and which one was by far the greatest? It is so evident. It's so clear. But as I've been thinking through this, there have been some questions gnawing at me. <laughs> I, one of them is this. I wonder if, if on that given day in history, I wonder if Jesus had just done the first miracle, the spiritual miracle, and not the second, not the physical. I wonder if Josiah and the four would have deeply celebrated or if they would have gone home at least somewhat disappointed. I wonder if they would have gotten it. I wonder if they would have realized the deep significance of it. Another gnawing question that I've had is if on that given morning in history, when the leader of the four realized Jesus was in town, if the claim about Jesus was was only that Jesus could forgive sins, would they have gone on this passionate, all-out pursuit for Josiah to have his sins forgiven? To have his eternal address changed? Would they? Would they maybe have begun, but when they saw the crowd, would they have given up? Did they really grasp? Did they really grasp, especially when it happened, did they really grasp what happened? And it gnaws at me because, because I know our struggle on this. Physical health and well-being in all matters a great deal, doesn't it? It really does matter. Our oldest son, Justin, was visiting a week and a half ago, had a couple of nights with us, had a great time with him. The first night he was here, it was, it's my longest work day. I got home about 10 o'clock at night, and he and I are sitting in the living room visiting, and about 30 minutes in, maybe an hour in, so maybe it's, maybe it's 11 o'clock, he, he realizes that uh, something's wrong with a big toe, and he takes the shoe off, and, and it's a staph infection, and he knows because over the past decade, he's had three or four of those, and if you know anything about staph infections, they tend to progress very fast, and they can be deadly, they're life-threatening, and he'd had a couple that had gotten close to life-threatening with him, and so he looked at it, so he says, I'm going to go find a an all-night emergency clinic someplace, and I'm going to get it treated, and so on and so on. And, and he, he could have done that by himself, but I'm his dad. I'm not going to let him do that by himself. And so it's 11 o'clock at night. It's I don't know how many hours into my day, but I'm going to go with him. And so there's this pursuit to find this all-night place, and there's this wait there, and there's this doctor, and back and forth, and costs, and insurance, and all, the whole nine yards. And then that leads to the pursuit of an all-night pharmacy, and all the ins and outs of that. And, and we're way into the wee hours of the morning, and there was this point where I, I'd been doing so good on adrenaline, and at some point adrenaline ran out, and there was this sledgehammer of exhaustion. It was just bam, but it was not going to deter me. 
I was going to see that my son actually got physical healing. That's the way we look at it because it matters. It should matter. My wife, Marie, some of you know back when our second son, Daniel, was born, she became very, very ill. And we went to a specialist who could not find a diagnosis or a solution for her. And so, so I found a second specialist that we went to who did not find a diagnosis or solution. And I found a third one and a fourth one and a fifth one and a sixth one. And, and about the sixth one, he found a, a diagnosis and a solution. But if he hadn't, there would have been a seventh and an eighth and a ninth. I was going to go to the ends of the earth. And, and we should. For physical struggles and physical health and well-being, we should do that. But, but how much more so when we get it? How much more so should we have this all-out passionate pursuit for someone to have the spiritual healing that does not have a shelf life? How much more so should that be the case for us? Let me put some context around this. We've been in this series called The Harbor. And if you've been here uh, you could probably quote these words for me. Restore, refuel, return. And I've been teaching through what that means in, in God's church. And the restore piece is when we are battered and bruised and broken, God restores us to health again. And the refuel part is when we are weary and worn and tired, God refuels us again. And now I'm beginning to teach and touch on what would be two weeks about the return piece. And the return piece means that, that as he restores us and refuels us. His full intent is to to return us to our everyday lives with Jesus at the center. That's his full intent. Not that we come here and this is a great hour or a great day, but his intent is that then 24-7, until the next time we're gathered again, that we're living with Jesus at the very center. And there's this cornerstone of what that looks like that relates to where we've gone so far. I want to read it to you. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. It's this profound what can be, what should be, what's intended to be life-altering passage. It's about returning to life. It says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. And by the way, to belong to Christ means that there's a life of faith that has begun. Someone has said to Jesus, would you please forgive me and lead me? And they mean it. And and in that moment, their sins are forgiven and this new life has begun. That's what it's talking about. So the old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. This is all, this is God's gift. But then it goes on and says, God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For it was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. So this is God the Father, God the Son doing all this, but then it picks up again, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are God's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Cornerstone of this returning to our daily life with Jesus at the center is us recognizing we're the spokespersons for Jesus. We're the spokespersons to tell people about Jesus. We're we're the spokespersons to introduce people to Jesus. At the time that, that I met Jesus, I was in the oil business, and I felt great purpose in that business. And reflecting back in this day, I, I still look back and with great fond memories of great purpose in that business. It's where God had me. 
And even then I had this sense we're, we're finding oil and gas and it is providing heat for homes and hospitals and schools and churches and everything. It's providing the environment that we can actually come worship in. It's providing gasoline for people to drive and get all these places. There was this great purpose in it. But when I met Jesus and somewhere in those first days and weeks, I realized, wait a minute, you actually want me to be a part in an eternal address changing? You want me to be a part of that? And while my purposefulness in the oil business continued, I realized that as I did that, there was a much greater purpose. The oil, we found in that season, we found a ton of oil. But by now, every single barrel has been used that we found. It's provided energy, provided value for mom and pop shareholders. It, it had an expiration date. It had a shelf life, and it has expired by now. But every effort that you or I make that leads someone to trust their life to Jesus, there's no shelf life on that gain. There's no expiration on that gain. So, so how do we do that? How do we be these spokespersons, these ambassadors? It most often looks like this. In John chapter 1, there are two very simple illustrations of something that is actually very simple, very profound, but very simple. In John chapter 1, verse 40, it speaks about a man named Andrew, and Andrew has just met Jesus, and it picks up in verse 40 and says that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John had said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. What did Andrew do? He had met Jesus. He just, he said, I've got this brother, Simon Peter. I'm just going to introduce him to Jesus. That's, that's what he did. It, it is as simple and as profound as that. It's nothing complex. It's nothing, there's no real high theology at this point of it. It's just, I've, I've met Jesus. I want my brother, in this case, to meet Jesus as well. And then it picks up a few verses later. It, so if we don't get it, and this is often true in Scripture. You'll see something repeated. It's so we realize, God, don't miss this. This is, here's, this is big. Verse 45 picks up. There's this man named Philip that has now also met Jesus. So in verse 45, it says that Philip went to look for Nathaniel, which is a friend of his, and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathaniel, can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip replied. And then he takes Nathaniel to meet Jesus. This is one friend with another friend, just, just introducing this friend to Jesus. That's, that's what it is. That's how God most often works through us. That's how we are ambassadors. That's how, how we're playing a part in reconciling. So we just simply, are, our, our mission is only is just to introduce people to Jesus. It's as simple as that. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, I can say this with great confidence. Um, there's some purposes in your life that, that you have. Many of you, you, um, you have a role you're playing. Maybe you're getting paid for it. Maybe you're not. And it has physical aspects of it. Maybe you're making money, making widgets. Maybe you're in retail. Maybe you're in plants. Maybe you're on and on and on. There's some physical aspects. And that's part of God's call, calling on your life. And there's a purpose to it. There's a gain to it. But if you're a follower of Jesus... There's nothing more far-reaching that you will ever do 
then introduce someone else to Jesus. Everything else you do has a shelf life. Nothing else will make as big a change as from hell to heaven is this. This is the most far-reaching thing you and I could ever do. Around here, we talk about top three. And so that there's not, I hope, any confusion around it. Let me put a little perspective around it. In, there are seven billion people on the planet, and they tell us around five billion don't know Jesus. And you are not intended to introduce five billion of them to Jesus. But in any given season of your life, in most any given season of your life, there's a small number of people that God has intended you to be the one that most introduces someone to Jesus. In any season of your life, there's, there's a small number. Maybe it's two or three or four or five, but there's some number of people that, that you're, you're living out this life and God's intent is like the spotlight from heaven is upon you. And you're the one in the best position for now in this season to make the introduction to Jesus. And so that's why we use this term top three is to become mindful that there's some people in our world that God loves with this infinite love. They are worth more than all the gold on the planet. And you're in position, God knows and understands, you're in position, maybe he, just, maybe he put you there literally because you can be the one that, to best make the introduction to Jesus. That's, that's top three. That's what top three means. And, and if you're sitting there thinking, okay, I'm tracking, it makes sense, but I don't have that. Can I tell you just very simply how you discover your top three? It's not complicated. Usually it begins with this. Consider people in your orbit. If you're sitting there thinking, I don't know who these people might be. I know it's not the five billion. There's a small subset somewhere. Consider people in your orbit. In other words, your life does some kind of orbit. And, and you touch family members, and you touch neighbors, and you touch friends, and you touch maybe classmates, and you touch coworkers, and you touch people with the same hobbies. Look at your, your everyday ongoing life right now. Look at, look at where your life touches already right now. Look there. Consider the people there. Usually, the people God has a spotlight on for you is, is within that orbit already. Usually, it's not go do something different. Unless you look at your orbit and everyone in your world already knows Jesus, which I doubt, but if they do, you need another orbit. <laughs> you're too tightly bound. You're, you're missing half of the mission of life and the joy of life. Find, find some people that haven't yet met him. <laughs> so, so consider people in your orbit and then pray. As simple as that. Just ask God. I, I see all these people in my orbit that I, I meet and I have a sense of Quite a number of these that I know, I really doubt they know Jesus. And just pray and ask him, which ones? Who would be my top three right now? And then I want to give you a sense of of how to introduce them to Jesus. Because it can seem overwhelming and daunting, but it's really not. It's really simple. I'm going to tell you four things. They're intuitive. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's very important to remember these four things. Uh, Every single one of these four has a profound role and you um, having the best chance to actually introduce them to Jesus. The first is this, is to pray. Once you have a top three, to pray for them. And we have learned here, we've used the phrase, pray with every sunrise. And part of the heartbeat is we understand that Jesus with every sunrise, his heartbeat is for that person, for those persons, with every sunrise. And we've learned the impact if, if we pray with every sunrise for, for those three or two or four, whatever it is for you, if we pray for them. And, and in that prayer time, I find myself often asking that God would open up their heart and mind to the truth about Jesus. 
I often ask that God would orchestrate circumstances in their life that would help them uh, more easily see or recognize what Jesus has done in their life. I, I pray that, that God would uh, grow my love for them. I pray that God would direct me what to say and what to do. I pray God would give me next steps. There's so many things to pray about in that, but, but what I find every time it's happened, when I'm praying with every sunrise, and it's happening right now with my top three, which has now become top five, is as I've been praying, my, and I hardly knew them, my love for them has become profound. You almost can't help that. You're talking to the God of the universe who loves this person or these persons profoundly, and you have this conversation with God, and you almost cannot help it. But you grow this deep, deep, profound love for them as well. So you begin by praying. Second thing is, is to invest. Invest in the relationship with them. It, it, take time to get to know them and know who they are and know what their, their joys are and their disappointments are and their, uh, their pleasures and their struggles and, and, and get to know them as, as an individual It'll give you insights. God will often point in those times to give you insights of of what might be the bridge to Jesus in those times. Get to know them. Let them get to know you. There's credibility that can be leveraged that oftentimes is going to be essential in the process of of them ever beginning to believe Jesus is who the Bible says he is. So, So invest in the relationship. So pray, invest. The third thing is to invite. You don't have to do this alone. There's this entire church family is this entire church body. And most of the time, God uses the broader church. Most of the time, there are other people here. When you invite them to come to a worship service or invite them to a small group or invite them to a men's or women's event or invite them to something the church is doing, they get to meet other people that know Jesus as well. And there's more credibility about Jesus. There's another bridge toward Jesus. This is so timely. Christmas Eve is how many days away now? I should do the math because I got to talk. I got to talk that night. It's 13 days away now. That, that night and Easter, the two most likely times that your top three will say yes to come to church. It's almost, it's almost spiritual malpractice not to invite your top three to Christmas Eve. <laughs> the potential is so high. What's the worst that can happen? They're busy. Or at least they say they are. They don't want to come, but they say they're bu- that's the worst that can happen. It's almost spiritual malpractice, the, the invite deals that Tim talked about, profound door to invite people to come. But it's not just Christmas Eve, but it's, it's invite anything here so they can meet other Christ followers as well. So it's, it's to invite into the full body of Christ. And then the last thing after you pray and invest and invite is to tell. At some point, tell them of your experience with Jesus. It's the most important part of your life. And it doesn't have to be complicated, and this is the best structure that I've ever found. You, you tell them what life was like before Jesus became Lord. You tell them what life was like before. You tell them of, of that event when you began to trust him. You, you tell them, and you tell them, I, I ask him to forgive my sins and leave my life. You tell them, this is, when the, this is when I trusted my life to him. Then you tell them what's changed since then. Tell them what your life is like now with him. Find, find some time or some, maybe even multiple times to give them aspects of that to tell them. And find some time you can tell them about this, this is what it means to place your faith in Jesus. You ask him to forgive. You ask him to lead your life. So you tell them. 
It's not complicated, but each piece is, is profound. Pray, invest, invite, and tell. Early this year, Dana Aronson, one of our lead pastors, had this vision, this dream, this idea of starting what he called a top three prayer initiative. And so early in the year, we said, if, if you have a top three, if you would email us, and I would say today, if, if you haven't already done this, if you would email me and give me just the first names of your top three, then we have a number of people that are praying every single week by name for top three people. And so we have uh, people that are prayers that will take maybe two or three or four folks with top three. And so, so they're praying virtually every day of the week. And before a week has passed, then each of your top three is prayed for at least once or twice by someone by name. And, and so I would invite you into that. If you have not sent us those names, we, 180 of you have given us names. I have about 600 people being prayed for now. If you've not done that, or if, you, if you're just now developing who those top three are, email me and say, hey, Rick, here, here are the first names of my top three, or my top two or my top five, who they are. I want someone to pray for them. And we'll gladly do that. We'll gladly do that. Some of you, some of you in this room today, your sins have not been forgiven. And you're like all the rest of us. One who, one who sins, like all the rest of us. But Jesus has already died for your sins. He's already died for your sins. And perhaps he's been working to your life to this very moment, to bring you to this moment for you to say, I, I want the law blown down. I want my sins forgiven as Josiah's sins were forgiven 2,000 years ago. I want that now. And you need to understand, it, it happens in this heartbeat of you saying to Jesus, I'm placing my faith in you by asking you to forgive my sins and lead my life. And if you pray that and you mean it, then a life of faith has begun. Going forward, you've said, you're king, you're lord, you're boss. I follow you now. In a heartbeat, as happened for Josiah, that wall is vaporized. Some of you, that's, this, this may be your Josiah day. This may be your get up off the stretcher that's on the ground day to trust Christ. All of us that have or will trust Jesus, we're going to meet Josiah in heaven one day, and you can find out if I guessed his name right. You'll find out what his real name really is. But you're going to meet him one day, you're going to know his history, you're going to know his story, and you're going to look at him, and you're going to think about 2,000 years in heaven, and you're going to be crystal clear about which miracle mattered most. Will you and I be as crystal clear today about the ones around us, the Josiahs around us? If you're Andrew, do you know who your Peter is that you introduced to Jesus? If you're Philip, do you know who your Nathaniel is that you would introduce to Jesus? And do you know what the stakes are? Do you know how, how deeply it matters? And do you understand that the one that is, has been and is restoring you and refueling you He's sending you back out, and cornerstone, cornerstone of the sin doubt is this. 2 Corinthians 5, I'll read 18 to 20 again. God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making this appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. There is no more far-reaching thing you 
will ever do in your life. There's a man named Craig who has allowed us to do a video. I've known Craig quite well the last few years, and uh, he's living his life this way, and he's a very humble man, but this is just a glimpse of, of what it looks like. I want you to watch this, and then we're going to follow with this song that captures so well that this need of Jesus' forgiveness is this universal need. No exceptions. Universal need. And uh, as we have this song then, I want you to really grasp the words of it and participate as much as you can or want to in it. And then I'll have a few words to close with after that. This is Craig. This is his story. We started, uh, I guess, coming here about 10 years ago. Um, at that time, we had uh, just moved to Friendswood and we wanted to find a church home. Um, we attended here for about four years. My prayer life had always kind of more been like, uh, Jesus, help me do this. Jesus, I want this. And for the first time in my life, I prayed a very different prayer. And that prayer was, Lord, what is it, what is it that you want me to do? And, and looking back, that was uh, definitely the pivot point um, uh, of my life. And so I started digging in and I started reading the Bible. Um, as I read the Bible and started studying the Bible, that, uh, that led to a, a Thursday morning men's uh, Bible study group. Uh, which ultimately led to to attending Catalyst. And um, at Catalyst, there was a talk on priorities. And that talk just stuck with me the entire weekend. Um, it made me keenly aware that God was in my life, but he was not the center of my life. And that was when I, I asked Jesus to forgive me for my sins and to lead my life. Um, from there, the Holy Spirit moved in, and I've never been the same since. Uh, he sent me back out uh, with a mission and a purpose. And... Um, and that mission was to, is to share the, the wonderful uh, gift of Jesus Christ wherever I go. And so I know and, and, and realize that there's many people that are walking through life the exact same way that I walked through life, you know, 39 years of, of my life. I just lean on the Holy Spirit to, to, to prompt me and to share um, the good news just where, um, where I feel that God opens those doors in those situations. You know, when you openly share a story, uh, that involves faith and involves something Christ has done in your life and you're just really just telling a story is how that will open the door um, for further discussions uh, for that person, that individual, just how that can then, um, you know, turn into a person, open up where maybe they kind of share their testimony or their struggle in life or whatever that is. And um, um, it's just amazing how God works through those things. And I know there are many people walking uh, this earth with the same thought and understanding that I had where it's about trying to be good enough or trying to look a certain way or, you know, and the truth is we wind up wearing a mask and um, that's not who we are. And, you know, Christ says, come as you are. And um, that's a big part of where that, that freedom comes through from where we realize that it's a true gift we receive. And that is the message that I hope to bring um, in the conversations that I, that I have um, as I as I you know, work to spread the good news of Christ, and that uh, he came for me and, uh, and for you.